Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. This is the fifth message in a short series I'm entitling, How God Treats His Children. I've done many series in my lifetime. I don't know that I've done many where I numbered them and told you the number. The reason I'm doing that is I think it's important in this particular series that we keep everything in a context. It's important that you understand a number of different things because it would be easy to misunderstand if you took these in one in isolation and not relationship to the others. So let me just remind you that the first message was on the fact that God blesses his children. And that means, among other things, that he has given us everything we need to grow to spiritual maturity. The second message was on the fact that God encourages us. He does that primarily through his word, and he also does that through giving us other people who can be examples, who can be teachers, who can exhort us and comfort us and minister to us. The third message was on the fact that God the Father disciplines his children. The word simply means, the Greek word means, to child train. And again, he allows various things to come into our lives that he may train us to be like his son, which is the essence of spiritual maturity. Then the last message is on the fact that God gets angry. Uh, I should clarify one thing. And that is, uh, he disciplines us out of love. The Bible makes that very clear in Hebrews chapter 12. But he does nevertheless get angry. It is often said that parents get angry at their children, but they shouldn't punish them out of anger. They should wait till that subsides a bit and punish them out of love. And the model for that is the Lord himself. The next thing I want to say in this series, and this is going to take more than one message, is that God rewards his faithful children. Let me repeat, that one sentence is very critical to what we're going to be discussing today and in the weeks to come. God rewards his faithful children. Now, that immediately brings up another, a a whole bunch of questions, not just one, but a whole bunch. What is the basis on which God does that? What's the basis on which he rewards us? What are the rewards, and when do we get them? Now, in order to answer all of those questions, a number of different topics in the New Testament need to be explored. Among them are things like the judgment seat of Christ, the whole concept of rewards, which is mentioned by name and sometimes referred to but not by name. Then there's the whole concept in the New Testament of crowns. You've heard of those. And there is the idea in the Gospels of ruling in the kingdom. In the book of Revelation, it talks about being an overcomer and the consequences of that. Now, all of those concepts and more need to be examined in order to answer the question about how God rewards his children. So I'm going to start in this message by taking the first of that list I just gave you. Today, we're going to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. What is that about? Well, that word... Judgment seat uh, is the Greek word bima, and it appears 12 times in the New Testament. Uh, 
Only two of those are referring to the Bema of Christ. So what I'm going to do today is look at those two passages where that word judgment seat appears, meaning the judgment seat of Christ, and then I want to look at a third passage that helps us understand what's going to go on at the judgment seat of Christ. So with that in mind, will you open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. And while you're doing that, I want to go back to my original statement that I made a minute ago. God the Father rewards his faithful children. So before I even start the judgment seat of Christ, I want to just remind you, it's his faithful children. The Bible makes an issue out of that, and I think so should we. You'll recall that Jesus said that he told a parable in which the master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's in Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. It's also in Luke chapter 19, verse 17. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. So, before we look at anything, one of the things we need to know is that God rewards not all believers, but faithful believers. Now, it's going to take me several messages to unpack all of that, but that's the key idea. Got it? Put it down. We're going to revisit it again and again. But let's start by looking at Romans chapter 14. This is one of the passages that mentions the judgment seat of Christ. It's in verse 10. But why do you judge your brother? Or do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, let's talk about the judgment seat of Christ. One of the first things I need to say is that there is a judgment for unbelievers in the Bible, and there is a judgment for believers in the Bible. Notice that verse 10 says, for we shall all stand. Paul is including himself. So this is the judgment for believers. But Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, talk about a great white throne judgment and it is obvious that only unbelievers are at that judgment. So, we need to put this in the context of the New Testament. There are two judgments. Actually, there are more, but these are the two biggies. If you have not trusted Jesus Christ, you will appear before the great white throne judgment. Destiny is already determined. So that determines your, the nature and extent of your guilt. That's for unbelievers. No believer will ever appear before that judgment. Rather, believers appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I know that because John 5.24 says, He that believes in the Son will not come into judgment. They've passed, those who've trusted Christ, from death to life and will not come into judgment. Well, that's John 5.24 and Romans 14.10 says we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So how can you say we're not going to be judged and then we're going to be judged? And the answer is what I've just told you. We're not going to be judged in terms of our eternal destiny. That's the great white throne judgment for unbelievers, that their destiny is already determined. We're not going to appear before that judgment. Rather, we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Those are two entirely different, distinct things. All right, 
<coughs> if our eternal destiny is already determined, it's already determined we're going to heaven, and nothing can change that, we're not going to be judged concerning that, we're not going to be at the great white throne judgment, then what's this judgment all about? And the answer to that is in verse 12. So then, each one of us shall give an account of himself to the Lord. All right, Romans 14 says all believers are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and at that time, we're going to give an account of ourselves before the Lord. Now, this is getting ahead of myself. I will demonstrate this in a minute. But we're going to give an account so that it can be determined how much reward we get in the kingdom. That's the point. But this passage simply says that we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and it clearly says we're going to give an account. Did you see that? Everybody got that? Or did I put you to sleep already? Got it? Give an account. That's what you need to know. Now, just for kicks, let me take a minute. I think this passage is really interesting. I want to just very simply and swiftly survey what's in this passage. I want you to go back to verse 1 for a second. Receive one another, uh, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to despise over doubtful things. For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Interesting. The context of this passage is a dispute apparently going on in the church at Rome at the time. And of all things, they were disputing over what to eat. Can you imagine? And apparently, some he calls weak, and, by implication, others he would call strong. Now, what is that all about? Well, we know from this passage, and the one in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10, that there were those who were strong in the faith. They believed that the Old Testament no longer applied to them. They didn't have to abide by all those dietary laws in the Old Testament, and they could eat pork for breakfast, and mixed clothing, uh, cotton and synthetics. and They didn't have to abide by all those things. They believed that we were no longer under the Mosaic law. But apparently there were others who said, no, 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 wait a minute. Maybe, maybe we should not eat pork because the Old Testament says you shouldn't eat pork, so you can't have bacon for breakfast. And there was a dispute. And they were judging one another and despising one another all over food. Now, that is probably involved because the book of Romans constantly refers to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Gentile. But it probably went beyond that and involved even other things because he says in verse 2, and one eats only vegetables. Well, that wasn't a Jewish thing. They did eat meat. They ate lamb at Passover. So maybe this involved other things, but here's the point. It wasn't anything of a moral issue. As a matter of fact, in verse 1, he calls it doubtful things. You're disputing over something that is not a moral issue. That's his point. You're debating these things, and you're judging one another, and you shouldn't do that. Now, he also brings up a second issue. He says uh, in verse um, 5, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. So they were debating over diet and days. Now again, this might have a Jewish flavor. As you know, the Jews in the Old Testament had certain feast days that they observed. Now, the early Christians were all Jews. And so some of them said, well, we should still observe these feast days in the Old Testament. 
And other Christians said, no, we're not under the law. You shouldn't keep those feast days at all. And so they were debating that. They were disputing that. And consequently, they were judging one another and despising one another. And the passage begins by saying, receive one another. You don't have to agree on those kind of things, but you need to love one another. Do not judge one another. Now, I think this passage is particularly fascinating because I think it's uh, the kind of thing that happens today. Christians debate, argue, dispute, separate over some of the most minor picayune things. Now, they're, they're doubtful things. They are debatable things. They are not moral things. They are amoral things. And the Bible is very clear. Some are convinced they should only eat vegetables and only observe certain days. And others say all days are alike and you can eat anything you want. There's Bible for that. But they're strong in the faith that others are weak. So just don't judge one another. That's his point. Don't judge one another. By the way, uh, I need to clarify what a weak brother is. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, a weak brother is someone who thinks that I shouldn't do something, then sees another believer do it, and because of a weak conscience, does it, and is therefore violating his own conscience. So a weak brother is not just somebody who says, I've got this idea, this man-made mandate, you shouldn't do something, and tries to make everybody fit it, or they're not spiritual. That's a legalistic brother. That's the term we use to describe that. It's not a weak brother in Scripture. A weak brother is someone who believes it's wrong, and because somebody else does it, does it. That's the problem. Now, Paul's point in Romans 14 is... Don't judge one another. If somebody wants to keep the feast days in the Old Testament, let them. We have a Messianic congregation who meet in our church, and they just absorbed, uh, observed Rosh Hashanah, which was this past week. And uh, that's fine. They are Christians. They want to observe that. Paul would say, that's fine. Just don't despise them because they do it. And they shouldn't despise us because we don't do it. Got it? Amen. So one of the things that comes out of this passage is do not judge one another. And don't despise one another because you happen to have some personal preference to a particular issue that's not a moral issue. Now before I move on, I need to clarify something. The Bible says we are to judge. I just thought you said we weren't supposed to judge. I did. But the Bible says we're to judge. What That's in right. the world? You're double talking. No, you've got to make a distinction here. The Bible says we ought to judge false doctrine. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4, Paul says, you know, if somebody came and preached another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit, you, 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 you'd accept them. That, that, now, you should not do that. So he's talking about doctrine. You also should judge between good and evil. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the opening verses and that opening paragraph talks about the fact that there are two people at odds with each other, and Paul tells the church to judge between them, rather than going to a secular court. So they're commanded to judge those kind of things. That's clearly the difference between good and evil. So we are commanded to judge doctrine and deportment. We are commanded not to judge what Paul calls doubtful or debatable things. So you need to put that all in perspective. We are to judge some things, we're not to judge others. And by the way, before you judge somebody's conduct, I think you need to have proof. 
Matter of fact, the scripture would say two or three witnesses, which is another way of saying you need to have proof. All right, let's sum it up. There are certain things you ought to judge. Got them? Remember what they were? You're looking at me with a question mark on your face. Doctrine? Behavior that's a deviation from moral scripture. All right? What are you not to judge? You're not to judge debatable things. People who have an idea that they're going to do something that you don't do, or they're not going to do something you do do. All right? Now, before I go on, I'm just tempted. I taught the book of Romans before, and when I got to this passage, I sat down and thought about all the things we judge people for that we shouldn't. And I wrote a list. And what I said in that message was, uh, we go from A to Z. And then I tried to come up with an A, B, C, D, E, F. Would you like to hear my list? Here's what I said. Uh, the modern list includes alcohol, bingo, cosmetics, dancing, eating pork, football on Sunday, going to movies, Halloween, insurance, jeans, kissing, lodges, newspaper on Sunday, opera, pants, rock music, smoking, TV, wine, X-rated movies, zippers instead of buttons. <laughs> Could you add to the list? I could. But that's what we do. Paul teaches we're not to judge one another in moral areas. We need to let the Lord take care of that. And that's his point. You don't judge him. And he argues in verse 10, don't judge one another. Look at verse 10 again. Why do you judge another brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Let the Lord judge them, not you. That's the point of this passage. The point I want to glean from it is that we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and, verse 12, give an account. Now what I want to do is talk about give an account. What does that look like? Give an account of what? Does that interest you? Um, used to be a teacher. I used to be a student. Would you like to know what's going to be on the final exam? <laughs> if I could tell you what's going to be on the final exam, would that help? Yeah. I'm going to start today, and I'm going to tell you as this series goes on, and this is very important. Matter of fact, I have said this may be one of the most important series of messages I've ever delivered. But let me give you a little hint. No, let me give you a big hint. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a very interesting passage of Scripture. In the first eight verses, Paul is teaching that he is certain he's going to be with the Lord in heaven. Matter of fact, verse 8 sums it up. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul is saying, I'm certain, I'm confident, there's no doubt that when I'm absent from the body, I'm going to be present with the Lord. Got it? Got it. All right, I'm going to be with the Lord. So here's his conclusion, verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. If I'm going to be with the Lord, then I'm motivated to please him now, absent from his presence, so to speak, and when I'm in before his presence, I want to please the Lord. So, he says, I'm going to explain that. 
verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the second and last time the phrase, the judgment seat of Christ, appears in the New Testament. As I mentioned, the word judgment seat is the word bima. It actually means nothing more than a platform. Uh, Roman rulers stood on that platform and pronounced judgment. Remember when Pontius Pilate passed judgment on Jesus? He stood on the bima, uh, the same Greek word. Uh, when Paul appeared before Gallio in Corinth, he stood before the judgment seat. As a matter of fact, I've been to Corinth, and they've uncovered it. There's this huge rock, it's square, and on that it's a, pla a raised platform, and the Roman magistrate was up there and pronounced judgment. That's all the word judgment seat, bima, platform, means. Only in this case, it's the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul says, I'm going to stand before the Lord. Now prior to this, he's been talking about standing with, being with the Lord. Now he's talking about standing before the Lord at the bima. And so he says in verse 10, that each one may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether it is good or bad. All right. In Romans 14.10, he said, we must give an account. Now he's going to amplify that a bit. And he says in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether it's good or bad. There are three words in that verse we must understand. The first is the word appear. The second is the word receive. And the third is the word bad. You get those three words and you got this down very well. The one translated appear means to make visible, known, manifest. It could refer to nothing more than an appearance, like appearing in court before a judge. Or it could mean that we must stand revealed in our true character. So appear means we're going to appear in our true character. One commentator, a highly respected commentator, on this verse said, and I quote, to make manifest means not just an appearance, but to be laid bare, stripped of every outward facade of respectability and openly revealed in full and true reality of one's character. All our hypocrisies and concealments all our secrets, intimate sins of thought and deed will be open to the scrutiny of Christ. End of quote. What? Wow. Could that possibly be true? Will our thoughts as well as our deeds be on display at the judgment seat of Christ? Is that possible? Well, that's buried in this word appear. But let me tell you, there are many verses that support that idea. For example, Jesus said, in Matthew 12, 36, every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Now that verse may refer to unbelievers only. However, it may not. Jesus told the disciples in Luke 12, 1 through 3, quote, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed nor hidden, nor will not be known. 
Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the ear, in the inner room, will be proclaimed on the housetops. Now that's Jesus talking. Every idle word. James says that the words of the believer who is teaching will be judged. That's James 3, 1. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. That's 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Note that verse and note it well. It's not just the conduct It's the thoughts and the motives behind both. Wow. The counsels of the heart refer to motives in this passage. The Lord's judgment will consider all the facts, including the motives. The writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we believers must give an account. Nothing will be hidden. It'll all be revealed as we stand before the Lord. All believers must give an account to the all-seeing, all-knowing God. Paul says that everything believers do in this body, meaning, of course, in this life, will be taken under consideration both good and bad. I'll get to that in a minute. A friend of mine who wrote a book on this subject years ago said, every thought, every word, every deed, every motive will one day be evaluated by Jesus. Now that's just the word reappear. We need to also consider the word receive. What does it mean to receive? That word means to receive back, to get an equivalent. In other words, it means payback time. That's exactly what it's talking about. It's used of wages. You're going to get paid back. Now, the bad part is the word bad. Everything is going to be revealed, both good and bad. Wow, what is the meaning of the word bad? Matter of fact, some want to translate this, well, just the worthless things. And it's a big textual problem. But in my opinion, the translation bad is much more appropriate. It is the text. And all the major modern translations translated either bad or evil. So every bad thing we've ever done, every evil thing we've ever done, will be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. Everything. Matter of fact, the word bad is used in Matthew 21, 41 of wicked men. In Matthew 24, verse 48, it's evil servants. In Matthew 27, 23, it's evil he has done. In Acts 23, verse 9, we find no evil in this man. I could go on and on and on. The word means bad. The word means evil. So, everything is going to be revealed. The good things I've done and the bad things I've done, the good things I've done, and the evil things I have done. So Paul declares that all believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that they may receive their due, all they did in their lifetime, whether it was good or evil, good or bad. Based on that, look at verse 11. He says, therefore... Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The terror of the Lord is the fear of standing before the Lord and having one's life 
to use the words of one respected commentator, exposed and estimated. The reality of giving an account to the Lord motivated Paul to persuade men. He is speaking of the need to convince Corinthian Christians of his integrity and his sincerity. You see, they were challenging Paul. They were, some were. They were questioning Paul. And he says, look, I'm going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And, and fearing the Lord, I, I, I want to I have integrity before you. Now this verse sometimes gets quoted as knowing the terror of the Lord, we go out and preach the gospel. And that's not at all what this is talking about. And uh, that is obvious from uh, the latter part of the verse. Just read it. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust well known in your conscience. So he's not talking about evangelism. He's not talking about preaching the gospel. He's talking about having a good testimony before other people. That is the point. By the word, by the way, the word translated well-known in verse 11 is the same one that's translated revealed in verse 10. So he is saying, as I'm going to be revealed before the Lord, I want to be revealed in your conscience. I want to be revealed as having integrity and character and honesty and sincerity. So he is saying that being open to God's view, he hopes he's open to their view. So, to sum up this passage, believers should make it their aim to be well-pleasing to the Lord because they are confident they will be with him, that's the first eight verses, and because they know they will stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, to receive things done in the body according to what they've done, whether they are good or bad. The reality of giving an account to the Lord should be motivation for believers to persuade others that they have sincerity and integrity. All right, let me sum up what I've said thus far. Romans 14 says we're going to give an account. 2 Corinthians 5 says... And everything we've done, good or bad, is involved in the account. Got it? Got it. All right. I want to pause here and um, tell you a story. I was taught that um, uh, when we stand before the Lord, uh, we're going to put everything on the fire, and the fire's going to burn it, and some's going to be gold, silver, precious stones, and some are going to be wood, hay, and stubble. Remember that passage? It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So I, from a young age as a Christian, I was taught that that passage says our works are going to be judged. And sure enough, that passage talks about our works. And some are going to be gold, silver, precious stones, and some are going to be wood, hay, and stubble. So for years and years and years, I walked around believing, well, don't worry about anything. Just all you've got to worry about is uh, your works. That's what's going to be judged. Then I became an evangelist, and I was traveling around the country, and I spent a week in it with a pastor. I forgot his name. I forgot who he was. I even forgot where it was. It was years and years ago. And he was of the opinion that at the judgment seat of Christ, Everything is going to be uh, exposed. And he used this verse in 2 Corinthians 5 to prove it. And I really objected. Uh, to use Paul's expression, I withstood him to the face. We spent one solid week debating it. And we went back and forth. It was friendly, but I mean, I just was no way I was accepting that. And he just kept pointing me to this verse, and he kept pointing me to this verse, and I would never, after a while it became a matter of, I'm not giving in, you know? And I never did concede he had a point until I got in my car and drove out of town and had a moment to reflect, and I said, you know what? 
I don't really know how to answer him. I don't have a rebuttal. He may have a point. Now, since then, I've gone meticulously through every verse in the New Testament as I've taught one book in the New Testament after the other. I've looked at passage after passage on the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to share all of that with you in this series as we go through them. And I've concluded he was right. I was wrong. I'm here to tell you that passage says it's all going to pop out. And I've quoted verse after verse after verse after verse that says that. So this isn't me talking. I'm just the Western Union boy. I just delivered the telegram. It's what the scripture says. And I got one more passage we need to look at today. And that is Colossians chapter 3. So turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and look at verse 23. And whatsoever you do, do heartily to the Lord and not to men. By the way, look at verse 22. He's talking to bond servants. He's talking to slaves. They didn't have any choice. They had to obey their master. Only he says, when you're working, uh, verse 23, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord, not unto men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Ah, this passage does not mention the judgment seat of Christ, but it's talking about the judgment seat of Christ, and it says, look, do whatever you do is unto the Lord, because you will receive, and it uses this real interesting phrase, uh, the reward of the inheritance. It's a part of your inheritance is the reward. Now, some people want to say that the inheritance is you get to go to heaven. If that's the case, the verse is teaching salvation by works because it's saying, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord, and that determines the reward. So that can't be the interpretation because the Bible is so clear that salvation is by grace through faith. Well, then what's it talking about? Well, it's talking about just what it says. An inheritance that is a reward. In other words, we're going to stand before the Lord and he's going to evaluate our life and the result of all of that is a reward. That's the point of that verse. So, read the rest of it. He says in verse 24, for... Uh, you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong, it will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Oh, here we go again. There's that wrong business. Only this time the word means wrong. It means wicked. It means criminal. Remember in the book of Philemon when Onesimus ran away? That was illegal. So Paul sent him back. Uh, the same word that you used of him as a criminal is the word wrong. He did what was wrong. He should have gone back and Paul led him to Christ and sent him back. So here we are again. We're going to have to deal with that which is good and that which is bad. Now the problem is that verse 24 is sometimes interpreted as being uh, sowing and reaping in this life. That if you don't do this, you're going to reap the negative consequences in this life. The problem with that is the word repaid in verse 24 is the same one that's translated received back in 2 Corinthians 5.10. So I think we're back to talking about this is what you receive uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. All right. Let's see if I can sum all this up and make a little sense out of this. Is this a bothersome message? Have you learned anything today? Unfortunately. Or maybe fortunately. Alright, I've said three things. Number one, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account. What's the verse? 
Romans 14.10. Actually, it's verse 12. Secondly, we're going to receive the things done in the body, whether good or bad. That's 2 Corinthians 5. And thirdly, we're going to get a reward. So, that is, if you do everything as under the Lord, you get a reward. Back to the original statement I made, which is the one thing I want you to remember to the day, and that is this, the Lord rewards faithful believers at the judgment seat of Christ. One more time. The Lord rewards his faithful children at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, these three passages are telling us that at the judgment seat, believers will give an account, be revealed for what they really are, be rewarded, and be repaid. Now, that just raises a whole bunch of questions in my mind. I mean a ton of them. What's the nature of a reward? What's the nature of a repayment? Uh, these passages don't tell us that. They just tell us that's what's going to happen. Well, then what's good? And what's bad? What's uh, wrong in that word in Colossians 3.25? Uh, these passages do not answer those questions. So, to answer those questions, all those concepts I mentioned at the beginning need to be examined one by one, and in this series, I'm going to take them each at a time, and we're going to work our way through everything the Bible says about rewards. Are you interested? That interest you? Well, let me tell you, it ought to. I'm going to say again, I think this is one of the most important subjects outside of salvation by grace through faith I've ever dealt with. Amen. You must know what's coming at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, let me make a confession. I do not know, after all the study I've done for decades, I do not know what all that is involved in the process, because as far as I can determine, the New Testament does not answer all the questions. But, based on what I do know, it seems to me that the New Testament is probably saying something like this. Everything we do will be evaluated. Wrestling with this subject for years, one day I met a professor who has specialized studying this subject. And I said, would you just make sense of this to me? Because there are things I don't understand. And it was his suggestion, and I think a good one. And as I've looked at the passages, I think he's right. I'll explain all that as I finish the series. That what's really going on is an evaluation. Everything will be taken into consideration, and then the final grade will determine the reward. So when these passages say, whether it's good or bad, or good or wrong, then what it's saying is, everything's going to be taken into consideration, but the Lord is going to reward you. So, look at one more passage, and with this I'm going to close. That in an illustration. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says in verse 2, it is required of a steward that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Scary stuff. I don't look forward to that. I don't know anybody who does. 
But look at the last phrase. Then each one praise will come from God. What he wants to do is reward us. So he's going to look at everything, but the net outcome of that is going to be reward. So while I think that should motivate us to do that which is good and pleasing and honoring to the Lord, I think we need to know that everything's going to be considered and everything's going to be evaluated and that will determine our reward. So my illustration is this. Suppose you were in college and you took a course and you had a number of quizzes during the semester and a number of tests and a number of projects and you had a whole bunch of grades that needed to be averaged. And you looked over the list and you made a, some A's and you made some B's and oh yeah, that was the weekend when you went out and partied and you didn't do so well and Monday there was a test and you made an F. And oh yeah, that was that paper you forgot to hand in and that was another F. And You know, you look over the whole thing and you think, wow, I, well I did some good stuff and I don't want my friends to see the Fs and now what? What's this final grade going to look like? And the answer is, the teacher is going to take everything into consideration, all the A's and all the F's. And we're going to be standing there watching him. They'll be revealed. But the bottom line is, and every man is going to be praised, I passed the course with a C. I'll take it. Amen. I think that's the kind of thing that's going to happen, which is going to be a fair judgment. So those who really sacrificed and served the Lord and didn't make a lot of Fs will have a greater reward than those who made all Ds and Fs and those who made a bunch of both. So knowing all of that, in the meantime, what we need to know is that we're going to give an account of everything, including our motives. So I say to you, go and live accordingly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us heads up. Thank you for telling us that you bless us, that you encourage us, that you teach us, train us, and yes, Lord, that you're going to evaluate us Lord, impress this upon our minds so that, so that we respond accordingly and live accordingly, pleasing you and honoring you. In Jesus' name I pray.